when I took this information to the Forestry Commission, they were essentially gobsmacked. They, they were kind of going, you know, the value of this forest as a tourism and recreation resource compared to a timber resource is massive. You know, there was probably a couple of million pounds worth of timber going out of that forest every year, but 30 million pounds coming in to the local economy through, through, through tourism. So this had a, a really kind of profound effect on what the Forestry Commission was all about even, really. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 162, we have David Davis out of Wales. David was way ahead of his time in the world of mountain bike trail planning and design. What David was doing 30 years ago is easily as relevant or more relevant today. It was truly an honor to have the opportunity to have this conversation with David. And once again, we've all got Tony Boone to thank for this connection. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right. www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Trail One Components, the mountain bike component brand that was created to provide the best quality mountain bike components while giving back to the trails with every purchase of their products. My favorite Trail One Components are the Crockett Handlebar, the Rockville Stem, and the Hell's Gates Grips. For a 20% discount on all Trail One components, use the coupon code TRAILPOD at checkout. By using this coupon code, you are not only supporting trails, but a small commission can come back to the Trail Effect and help support the show. Now on to the Trail Effect with David Davis. What city are you located in in Wales? Well, we don't have many cities in Wales. So um, we only really have about three cities in Wales. So I live in the middle of the Snowdonia National Park in a little tiny place called Cwm Cynbal. There's only only four houses here. So I live in the middle of nowhere, really. Is that where you've always been or is that where you choose to be now? I was brought up three miles away. It's It's about the distance from where I was brought up currently, too. Yeah. I'm a home bird, you know? Yeah, for sure. But you've been all over the world. I have, yeah. That's, uh, so we got, we got brought together by the infamous Tony Boone. Yeah. Tony Boone is good at that. Yeah, he is. But at the same time, he credits you with teaching him a lot of what he knows. Right. Let's talk about what was the impetus behind you even getting into mountain biking? Well, I started mountain biking in 1987 when I was actually taking part in a, I was a 
I was a mountain runner, mountaineer, and a, a mountaineering instructor at the time. And um, there was a TV program called Trailblazers, uh, where we did all sorts of we did um, mountain running, uh, mountain biking, kayaking, abseiling, climbing, all that sort of stuff. It's a, sort of a competition, and I got a free bike out of it. So I I um, started started riding it. It was a it was a terrible bike. It was a, a rally montage, huge thing, and um, with like a twenty inch frame. But it but it started me off, and I started I started riding just on, you know, because it was called mountain biking. I actually started off by carrying my my bike up mountains and then riding back down them. So, and then I sort of uh, progressed onto riding in our in our local forest and on on trails and stuff we you know we 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 didn't at that time in wales uh we didn't really have any legal mountain bike trails so i was riding on hiking trails forest roads what are called public bridleways which are horse riding trails um so i was I was riding on all sorts of stuff, but I, I used to go and seek out single track, which at that time in Wales was actually quite quite rare, really. So fast forward a little bit, what brought you to the concept of trail centers? In 1994, I went to work for the Forestry Commission in Wales as a ranger at a place called Coy de Brennan. And, um, my my brief basically the, the, there was a sort of a visitor center that they had that had some hiking trails going out of it and this kind of stuff and they had about they only had about fifteen thousand visitors a year at that time to this visitor center and and I, I was actually told at a later date that the um, forestry commission had an agenda to actually close the visitor center but they but they hired me on a short term contract to see if I could get more people to come there, expecting me to fail, really. So I, I, had, I had no budget at all to get more people to come there. And I, I kind of looked at the forest and I kind of thought, well, you know, these, these forests in Wales at the time were being primarily used to produce timber for the timber-using industries and their value in recreation and tourism terms to the community wasn't being realised at all. And I kind of felt, that we should we should make it of more value, and I thought the best thing we could do with the forest in terms of recreation was mountain biking, and I and I began by setting up three looped trails from the visitor centre that I called Fun Sport and Expert because I because I was racing at the time, so I thought I would uh, you know use the same categories as, as race categories, and um, and I used some fire roads, um, some existing pieces of single track, and I started building some other pieces of single track, very much under the Forestry Commission radar. The um, Forestry Commission didn't really know what I was doing. But at the same time, I actually wrote a, wrote a paper for the Forestry Commission about mountain biking, and I kind of felt, I went to the, um, the uh, bike industry body in the UK, which at that time was called Bike Biz. And I asked, so how many mountain bikes are there in the UK? And they said, well, 
we know that there are 20 million households in the UK, and we know that on average, including children's bicycles, that there are three bicycles on average per household in the UK. And they said one in three bicycles that is sold at the moment, at that moment, this was in 1994, was a mountain bike. So this was a bike with flat handlebars and knobbly tires. So then I thought, well, so that's 20 million mountain bikes. I thought, wow, that's that's kind of a lot of mountain bikes. But then I went to the the mountain bike magazines and asked them, how many magazines do you sell in a month? And the highest selling magazine at that time was MBUK, and they sold about 35,000 magazines a month. So then I went to the British Cycling Federation and asked them, how many people have got race licenses? And they said, oh, there's about 2,000 race licenses for cross-country and about 500 for downhill. So I kind of extrapolated stuff a little bit, and I thought, well, there might be 50 or 60,000 active mountain bikers in, in Britain at this stage in 94. And then I thought, but there are 20 million mountain bikes. So why aren't more people riding mountain bikes off-road? Why aren't there more mountain bikers? And I kind of thought, well, I think it's pretty simple. There's nowhere for them to go and ride. You know, there, there aren't any accessible, fun trails for people to go and ride. So I kind of thought, I need to develop a model that makes authentic, proper mountain biking accessible to more people. And that's basically what I did. I developed a, a model which was based on the visitor facility. So we had lots of, lots of parking. We had, we had uh, toilets. We had a cafe, bike hire, and a shop. And um, I developed, as I said, three loops to begin with, fun, sport, and expert. And I started to, to um, build a lot, of, um, a lot of single track. I, st- I, I basically started off building it myself, and I, and I built trails that I thought would be accessible to as many people as possible, really. So not especially technical single track, but just really nice, flowy, accessible single track that most people could enjoy. And if you rode fast, you could have fun on. So the um, at about sort of at about this time, I started to use there was there was a local project called Drive for Youth, which gave sort of training opportunities to long term unemployed young people, and I gave them projects to to build trails. So I would I would flag out a trail, I would write up a specification, I'd provide all the equipment and some materials, and We'd have two weeks of uh, twenty odd dry for youth people helping with building the trail, and all this was all this was done by hand. And then I got apprentices from the Ford Motor Company to come and help build trails, and I got apprentices from the Royal Air Force. I got people who were on probation on community service to come and help build the trails, and it started to sort of develop and grow from there. And around this time, I I got there were. I got two pro mountain bikers in to run the cafe at the Vista Center um, because they had uh, contacts that I didn't have with the professional sort of mountain biking community and scene, really. So through them, we got some sponsorship. It was a tiny amount of sponsorship. It was it was £2,000 from Red Bull. And I used that money... I used Drive for Youth and all the other volunteer people to build the trails, but I used that money to set up 
It was the first sort of sponsored mountain bike trail in the UK at that time called the Red Bull Trail. And that was about, I think it was roughly about 20 kilometers, I think. And about two thirds of it was on, was on um, single track. So through Red Bull, we got a lot of um, magazine coverage. And before we knew it, we'd gone from 15,000 visitors a year within four years to 70,000 visitors a year. And they were all mountain bikers. And then from there, through through uh, the pro mountain bikers are called David and Sean Roberts. And through David and Sean, we got some more sponsorship from British outdoor company called Carrymore to help expand one of the existing trails that I, I had, the, the expert trail. And again, it was a small amount of money. It was like £4,000. But that enabled me to buy a tracked wheelbarrow you know a motorized motorized wheelbarrow to help us transport materials down the trails all of this really was was happening very much under the forestry commission radar the forestry commission were not really interested in what i was doing but then all of a sudden by the time we got to the the other thing i was doing during all this time i was making sure that we were counting how many people were coming we, we had calibrated counters on the trails, at the visitor centre, at the access to the car park. And I used the local college to help me do this evaluation and monitoring. So basically, did some work on the segmentation of the mountain bike market and on how much of an impact those visitors were having on the local economy. So... I found this was back in the in the nineties that we that we essentially had four market segments that were that were coming to to Coydubrenian at that time. We had uh, sort of family stroke leisure riders who were people with kids who were after very low level riding. Then we had sport riders, I called them, and these were your typical 90s cross-country racer, really, who were interested with, you know, riding with their ass in the air, riding as fast as they could. And then we had the what we called trail, trail riders, which were skilled outdoor enthusiasts who um, could read a map and could plan their own trail and were involved in other outdoor activities like climbing or, or hiking and that kind of stuff. But then... We had the key market segment, which I called the enthusiast. And this was quite a broad range of people. But they were people who, at that time, really weren't particularly skilled in the outdoors. They, they, they weren't proficient map readers. They, they weren't very confident in planning their own trails. But they wanted, they wanted fun riding. They, they, they wanted authentic mountain biking. So I targeted the, the the model very much at that part of the market because I felt that part of the market really was where the most potential for growth was. And that you know and I was I was proved absolutely right in that really. You know, by by the time we got to nineteen ninety eight, we had hundred and fifty thousand visitors a year coming to the visitor centre. We were bringing in at least thirty million pounds into the local economy a year. 
because the vast majority of the people that were coming were weekend visitors who were staying overnight because, you know, the forest is in, it's in quite a remote setting really for the UK, but it, it's not that far from, from anywhere. It's, it's about two and a half hours from Manchester, two and a half hours from, from Birmingham, four hours from London. So, you know, it, it's a perfect weekend destination really. So really, Coy de Brenin really was, you know, it, essentially we had a lot of information from that model. We had, we had information about the kinds of trails that people like to ride. We had information on the trail model itself, you know, that so this was visitor facilities where people could park their car safely. We had waymarked loops that people could actually go and ride. They were waymarked in one direction. So the way we did it to make the best use of our resources was to have most of the climbs on fire roads and all of the descents on single track. So that, that was making the best use of the resources that we had. And all this time, I hadn't spent more than £10,000 on developing all of this because we'd used, we'd used sort of volunteers and a lot of my own, my own time. You know, so we had that. But the, the really crucial thing as well, we had, we had this model, this very clear model that, that worked really, really well. We knew what kind of trails people, people wanted and we knew what the impact of those trails were as well, which was even more important. And this was, this was really kind of earth-shattering for the Forestry Commission. When I took this information to the Forestry Commission, they were essentially gobsmacked. They, they were kind of going, you know, the value of this forest as a tourism and recreation resource compared to a timber resource is massive. You know, there was probably a couple of million pounds worth of timber going out of that forest every year, but 30 million pounds coming in to the local economy through, through, through tourism. So this had a, a really kind of profound effect on what the Forestry Commission was all about even, really. So it was, yeah, it was, uh, but, but the, you know, I've made it sound like it was quite an easy process, but it really, really wasn't. It was, it was extremely difficult because I, I had, I had, you know, hostility from people within the Forestry Commission. I had people who tried to make my life very, very difficult, but I had to, I had to essentially push through. I'm, the, the interesting thing, thing is I'm on the autistic spectrum. so. I kind of, quite a lot of the time, I didn't understand that I was pissing people off. So I just, I just carried on doing what I was doing. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a blessing, huh, for that? To just, yeah. to just yeah. push through? Because I'm, I'm listening to you tell this story. We're talking in 2024, thir- literally 30 years later. Yeah. And you could be talking about this story today in 2024, and it'd be like, it, you wouldn't know it was 30 years later because we we're still having these exact same conversations today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy, really. You know, the, uh, I've worked around the world. You know, the, the, one of the interesting things that, that, that happened with Coy de Brenin, I think one of the most significant things that happened was that I, I used that model to develop a national development strategy for, for Wales, which, as far as I know, was very first time that had been done. So I worked with the Wales Tourist Board, what was called the Welsh Development Agency, 
local authorities, a charity, a sustainable transport charity called Sustrans and the Cyclist Touring Club. And I developed five more trail centres in Wales. We only actually spent £600,000 on on um, developing that, but that money came directly from the Welsh government. In, in 1999, Wales got its first government for 700 years. So the Welsh government were very, very keen for, you know, to, to increase the value of the public forests to the community. So this project that I'd come up with, that I'd developed kind of on my own, really, this, this um, strategy, they were very keen for it, you know, as a sort of a, I'm, I'm not sure, as a sort of a test case, really, for, for, what, for what the Forestry Commission really should be about. So the way I actually delivered that strategy was, you know, the, 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 the single biggest cost in trail building is labour. And the way I got around that was that the government at that time, we, we had a, a Labour government and they had a thing called the New Deal going, which an employer, which basically paid an employer two thirds of, of an employee. If, if somebody had been unemployed for more than six months, they could go on the New Deal. So the, they would be hired by an employer. The employer would get two-thirds of their wages from the government, but the employer would pay the other third and would have to provide on-the-job training for the, for the employee. Now, what happened was, was that local authorities, local councils, set up training agencies to deliver this. So what I did, I hired the local training agencies of each local authority where the trail centres were being built to provide me with labour. So I paid them two-thirds of the uh, one-third of, of the wage. They, they paid the other two-thirds, and I trained them. So we had, throughout the whole project, we had 70 people working on the project, 70 previously unemployed people. And bearing in mind, there was no, there was no tr- professional trail building industry in Britain at that time the, at all. So I was having to sort of, I was having to sort of make this up really as I was going along. So we trained these people in excavator driving. They got qualifications in chainsaw use, brush cutter use, excavator driving, driving dumpers, national vo- 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 vocational qualifications in, in dry stone walling and fencing, all of this kind of stuff. So, and from that, the Welsh trail building industry was born. Really, we had a lot of those, a lot of those guys that were on those schemes actually went on to run their own professional trail building companies. And really, the the really big thing about that strategy was that the Forestry Commission really changed what it was all about. It really, really changed. It it, it went from being solely about producing timber for timber using industries to being a lot more about community, recreation, tourism, all of those sorts of things. But unfortunately, the Forestry Commission has been subsumed now into what's called Natural Resources Wales. And we seem to have actually gone backwards 25 years. 
which is which is a bit sad. We can get into that in a little bit, but I'm really curious to know how you were able to train these people. Basically, I'm going to say in a in a trade or a field that didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to figure out what you know how a trail is going to work best for that what you call an enthusiast enthusiast mountain biker. You know, so how did you how did you effectively train the people to understand what you know how to build trucks? I know what it's like to train volunteers, and it's you, you don't really know what you're going to get as far as what how people take the training, right, or how people receive it. Well, the way it worked was. I actually had a very, I went through a very detailed trail planning and design process. So the trail builders were working to very, very detailed designs. So the way, the way it worked first was I would come up with a master plan for the trail system. So, you know, we, we built nearly 400 miles of, of, of um, trails during this project. So I spent a lot of time putting together master plans or saying, here's the trail corridor. This is because, you know, because we needed to go through approvals and all the different departments within the Forestry Commission. So I said, here's the corridor. This is the purpose of the corridor. This is why I want to build it here. These are the constraints within that corridor, that, which could be anything, you know, conservation, archaeology, timber production, water, anything at all. Here are the opportunities within that corridor. Here's how I want to build it within that corridor, and here are the mitigation measures we're going to put in place to deal with the with the constraints. So that would go through the various departments of the Forestry Commission. We get approval for the corridor, and then I would go through at, at each of the sites. I hired a coordinator for for the trail teams. So myself and and the coordinator would mark out on the ground with bamboo canes with flags on the top um every meter we'd mark out a definitive line of trail and i'd actually what what had been really interesting was i can remember when i when i was first trying to build trails i I built these two trails they both had a grade of eight percent one of them was falling apart one of them was absolutely fine and i was kind of and i and i was talking to this this old guy, this foreman from the civil engineering branch of the Forestry Commission, who was coming up for retirement, and I was talking to him about this, and he and he said, "Well, I've always had this idea that if you can keep the gradient of a track under half of the gradient of the slope, then you can get water to 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 scooch off it." And I thought, "Yeah, that sounds right." So I went and looked at a very old trail that we had in the forest that we called the Ant Trail, very very old trail. And I, I dug a cross-section through it to see how it was built. I thought it would have been a cut-and-fill trail, but it wasn't. And it was built, what we would call these days, as a full bench cut. So I kind of looked at that, and I thought, yeah, if we can keep the grade of the trail under half, of the, half the grade of the slope, we're quids in. And if we can sort of build um, full bench cuts, then we'll be fine. Having said that, a lot of the soils that we deal with here in Wales are extremely poor, very weak soils and very, very waterlogged. They're either with lots of organic material in them or they're, they're just basically rocks. So we would have to import quite a lot of material onto the trail to actually uh, armour the trails. So, so, yeah. So anyway, to go back to the, the sort of the design process, 
So all that stuff that I'd learned informed the design process. So what we had was we had definitive lines marked on the ground, and then I would come through with a measuring wheel and a soil sampler and a shovel, and wherever any component of the trail construction process would change, we would have what was called a chainage. So so the chainage would be every X meters. So the trail construction process was split up into corridor clearing, groundworks, sub-base, surface, stone pitching, hand finishing, landscaping, drainage. Wherever one of those components changed, there would be a chainage. And then there would be a description in the specifications of exactly what to do and how to do it for that particular chainage. So essentially what the trail teams had was a definitive line on the ground and then a book of instructions of how to build the trail. So that's what they did. And again, we're talking about a time that was a long time ago. Yeah. And those are concepts we're still, you know, I don't want this to come off as negative, but so many times people want to just skip all of that and just start digging. Oh, I know. I know. And, you know, a lot of the work that I've done around the world has been about advocacy, about, about advocating strategic development of trails with government organizations and policymakers. And really, that's what they're scared of. They're, they're, they're scared of getting it wrong. They're, they're, scared of, they're scared of ending up with something that's not sustainable. And really, having these sort of really robust sort of processes in place are absolutely key to getting, to getting policymakers and land managers on your side, especially if you're going to talk about spending serious money. I did a lot of work in Western Australia where I put together, the first thing I put together for the Department of Parks and Wildlife and the Department of Sport and Recreation was a sustainability framework. So basically saying, if you're going to build mountain bike trails, what does that mean? What do we mean by sustain? We want to do it sustainably, but what do we actually mean by that? So really, what is acceptable in terms of the impact on the landscape, the physical impact on the ground, what's acceptable in terms of impact on land use, what's acceptable in terms of impact on people, and get all that absolutely nailed down. As a, and, and that then informs everything else that, that actually goes on when they come to, to um, developing trails. And then put the strategy together. Well, the other thing I do, I develop what I call a frame of reference for any sort of strategy or master plan, which, which I think is really, really important because I've seen, I've seen lots of, of um, you know, the, when um, we developed the, the trail centre model in, in Wales and we did the strategy, an awful lot of people in the UK jumped on the bandwagon and there are now 70 trail centres in the UK and a lot were not put in very sustainably, really. You know, there was a, a rush to build trails because of the perceived benefits of, of trails, but a lot of the trails that were put in have turned out to be really unsustainable and, you know, potentially a problem. And so I think it's really important 
to avoid that. And I think one of the most important things about any project, whether it's a small local project or a national strategy, is that you have a sustainability framework to begin with, but that you also have a frame of reference that actually informs everything that you're going to do. And the frame of reference, I thrash this out in cooperation, close consultation with policymakers, land managers, user groups, um, stakeholders, all the different stakeholders, and say, well, first of all, with this, with this trail development, what are our aims and objectives? Let's nail down those aims and objectives. Those aims and objectives might be, you know, we want to produce a, a tourism facility or the land manager might want to manage mountain biking, manage, manage liability, manage sustainability, all that sort of stuff. But then you say, well, if those are our aims and objectives, what is the scope and scale of what we're going to do? If you want to create a, a national tourism um, resource, how much trail does that mean? You know, how big or how small does this really need to be? So really nail down the scope and scale of what they're going to do. And then kind of think, well, okay, what sort of trail models are we going to put in to meet these objectives and within this scope and scale? What kinds of what kinds of trails does that actually mean? You know, does it mean does it mean you know trails aimed at this part of the market, at that part of the market, at that part of the market? Who are these trails for? Who's going to use them, and how are they going to use them? And then the next thing, kind of say. How are these trails going to be managed? Where are the resources going to come from to actually manage these trails? And all of that stuff has to inform the planning, the design, and the construction of the trails at whatever scale that is, whether it's a small local project or a national strategy. So some, some people think that, that it's kind of overkill in terms of planning and, and consultation. But, if, but going through that process in Western Australia has led to them spending $17 million on building mountain bike trails, you know, putting a, putting a strategy together that has gone from virtually no single track trails in Western Australia to an awful lot. And the same happened in, the same happened in Ireland and in Czech Republic and in Poland. And, you know, so. I think I found that you even worked in Israel. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Through all of this, can you provide an example of something that you would push against in terms of like some kind of resistance you would face, maybe skepticism of it, and then how you how you typically got around that because it was new, it still is new in a lot of cases in twenty twenty four. Yeah, well, when when I was first developing trails, there was generally a belief that mountain bike trails couldn't be sustainable. Really, that they were going to have too much of an impact on the landscape, too much of an impact on the ground in terms of erosion and on the environment. And they were too dangerous, that, that there was too much of a liability, there was too much of a risk to the landowners for them to allow this sort of activity to, to actually happen. So I had to convince people that we can sort of plan and design all of that stuff out, basically. Um, so having really robust planning and design sort of processes. But also, I mean, the PTBA would, would absolutely cringe at me saying this, but one of the things I've put together in several countries have been trail construction standards that have been 
again, very, very robust. And also really robust trail um, classification and grading systems that are there to inform the design and construction of trails, not necessarily for the user. So if we if if we're saying we're going to build a blue trail, well, what does a, what is a blue trail? You know, so so basically, what is going to be the maximum gradient of a blue trail? What's going to be the minimum width? What kind of surface is it going to have? What kind of trail features are they going to be? What dimensions are those trail features going to have? How frequent are they going to be? So that and, and apply that during the planning and design process. So there's, I mean, you know, people do get sued. People who, who put trails in, unfortunately, do get sued. But if you can actually demonstrate that you said, well, look, we've got a really robust planning and design process. We've got a construction process that was that was monitored. It's been signed off against a set of standards and it's been managed in the right way, you know, so... One of the things you you brought up early on, and you glossed over it pretty quick, but I want to go back to it, is having a is the directionality of trails for users. The sort of model that that we developed in in Wales with the Trail Centre, it was basically the easiest way to to manage people. Really, we actually designed the trails so that people wouldn't really want to ride them in the opposite direction anyway. You know, so basically we would have. Most of the climbs on fire roads, all of the all of the all of the descents on purpose-built single track. Nobody in their right mind is going to climb single track and descend fire roads, are they? Really, it has to be bonkers. I mean, there are there are one or two of those people out there. Just... <laughs> <laughs> there are, but they're not in their right mind. But the majority <laughs> doesn't do that. <laughs> no, no, but but really, one of the things that was in, that that was important. For me, when I was developing the trail center model, was being able to demonstrate that we could manage the users of the trails successfully and safely. So, you know, we were operating in forests that were very intensively managed for timber, very intensively managed. So we had to make sure that trails and the trail users sort of, that we managed the interface between between that forest management and the users of the trail really successfully. So the the thing that we did was try and obviously make the trails one directional so that we could predict basically where people were and which direction they were going to go in and how they were going to use the trail. And that was really important for us. And it also was important for us to manage liability as well. That there's a Liability is a very big issue in the UK. We have a law called owner-occupier liability, where if you, any, any owner or occupier of any land is responsible for the health and safety of anybody on their land at any time. Now, if you invite people to come and do something on your land, then your duty of care and your liability goes through the roof. So it's very different to just having a forest and letting people go into the forest. If you kind of saying, well, come here and do this, you've got to make sure that you're fulfilling your duty of care successfully. And we and you do that through proper management and you know and well designed, well built and well managed trails, you know? Yeah, I could see that being a 
significant issues. So basically, you just don't ask anybody to go anywhere, and they just they just end up somewhere. Yeah, you know, because what land managers what they really like is if they can predict where the people using their land are going to be. It it actually makes their lives a hell of a lot easier, really. And by having, you know, waymarked, prescribed trails, it just makes that a lot easier, really. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So in the research that I was doing on you, one of the things I couldn't figure out is what you're up to now. I'm retired now. Are you still, but are you, are you still riding? Are you, I mean, are you still, Oh yeah. like well, what's, what's. I've had some quite serious health issues. I had two quite major spinal surgeries and during the last spinal surgery, I had a, I got a major stroke. So I was um, paralyzed down one side for about uh, eight months. And then I've, uh, I, I've gradually got, I'm I'm back riding a bike after a fashion. It's 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 uh, my left side is still very very weak, so I kind of pedal with one leg. Going downhill on technical single track is a bit sketchy because I my left hand doesn't grip things properly, so it it can be a bit challenging. But then I I was also last year I I was um, diagnosed with kidney cancer, so I've been having treatment for that. So, but, but everything, everything seems to be okay now, I think, fingers crossed. So I'm hoping that it's onwards and upwards from here, really. Well, then we have to go into, into the other thing that's been happening in the, in the world of mountain biking and trails, which is technology. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, <laughs> how is your, you know, we started this conversation in, in 1987 in your 20 inch bike that you got for, that you got for free. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that to 2024? I know, I know what my thoughts are and I know a lot of people's thoughts are, but let's hear your thoughts on just, you know, wheel sizes have changed, changed brakes have changed, dropper posts have come to be, e-bikes are a thing. Yeah. Shifting in transmissions are like, and in components are like light years ahead of what they were then. I think the mountain bike market has changed absolutely massively and people's expectations, certainly in this country, have changed with it, really. I think that, you know, bikes have become a hell of a lot more capable than they were. And it's it's meant that a lot of a lot of trails that weren't accessible to some people are now accessible to them. So I think the the, the and, and the other thing, the types of trails that people are demanding, I think is is changing. I think it's one thing that I have noticed in recent years, which, which does make me feel a bit sad, is that certainly a lot of the places that I work is that a lot of mountain bikers don't really seem to care about the impact that the trails are having as long as they're having a good time, really. So a lot of the trails that I see being built these days are very impactful, you know, big, wide excavations, big, big features being built in the woods. I mean, I think. I think that might be okay in a bike park setting, but in the in the middle of a public forest or a wild area, I've got a problem with it really. I've got no problem with with building trails with jumps on them if if that's what people want. But I think what you need to do if you're going to do that, do it in as low impact a way as possible and plan and design it to make sure that you can do that. 
The other thing that, that I think has changed that is e-bikes. In the UK, there are no restrictions on using e-bikes anyway. You can take an e-bike wherever you like. Um, and what it's actually done in a lot of places is kind of shrink the trail system. It's really weird. Like in, in Coydebrenning, one of the big trails in Coydebrenning is called The Beast, and it's 40 kilometers, and there's nearly 4,000 feet of ascent on it, and lots of lots and lots of technical riding. Um, and it used to be, you know, like a four- or five-hour ride for most people on a conventional bike. I know somebody who did it on an e-bike in an hour and a half, you know? So the sort of dynamics of the trail system have kind of changed. And I think in the future, we're going to have to take that into account. If we're talking about, if, if we want to develop a weekend destination, a tourism destination for mountain bikers, we're going to have to take e-bikers into account and plan and design the trails accordingly, I think, you know? They're, they're going to, e-bikers need probably bigger trail system. Yeah, I was just, that was going to be my next question when you brought that up was, you know, if you were still at this today, what are some of the things you'd be looking at implementing, you know, modifications to your original strategy to, to accommodate how things have changed? And, and like you'd said, people are building bigger features. And I agree with you that those features typically belong in a bike park setting and not in a public setting. I think that's yeah. the best purpose of it. I think that's what the purpose of a bike park is or a gravity bike park setting is, yeah. is for, in my opinion. And I love them. And I'll gladly pay to go to them. I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely a place for, for um, you know, for um, bike parks, but I don't see any reason why, if you're going to develop trails with big features that are really fast and flowy and all the rest of it, why you can't do that in a low-impact way and, and, you know, actually make sure that your design processes take all that into account, really. You know, you see excavations on some of these trails and bike parks that are 20 feet wide you know that it has a huge impact and what i had to do for many years was persuade people that we could develop trails that didn't have a visual and physical impact that sat in the landscape really really well i think that if i was if i was planning and designing trails these days i think i would it, it would it would totally depend on the frame of reference really for for what we were doing, you know, what the aims and objectives were, what the the model is, you know, is it a bike park? Is it public land? Are we trying to put together a trail center? Are we trying to put together more of a social trail network or whatever? Just make sure that again, you know, it, it comes back to this sustainability framework. Your sustainability framework should be informing what you're doing, whether you're building a bike park or you're building public trails. You know, there should be it it should be like a a kind of an ethical stance that you take to developing trails. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, to be honest, like that's, that's also playing the long game on this. Yeah. If you want to continue to get access and demonstrate that this is a viable activity that can blend yeah. in, you know, it's ensuring that you can continue to do it. I, I heard a, a really troubling thing on a, I was watching a, a mountain biking video on YouTube the other day. And uh, I heard a trail builder actually say, oh, Imbas build it once, ride it forever stuff and sustainability stuff is out of date. We need to build trails these days that are maintainable. And I thought that's, that's really quite troubling hearing that coming from a 
coming from a professional trail builder, because in, in my experience, finding the resources to build a trail is relatively easy. Finding resources to maintain and manage a trail is an awful lot harder. You know, so really, like I said, whether you're building bike park trails or downhill track or you're building public use single track trails, it should all be informed by a robust sustainability framework and you should be designing it to be as maintainable and as sustainable as possible, really. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, everything, everything in this world needs some level of maintenance, but we don't need to, we don't need to make it more than it has to be. Oh, sure. You know, but you know, like I see trails that, that are put in that require, you know, almost daily maintenance during the, during a riding season. And, you know, that's, that's crazy. You have to have a, that can only be sustained if you're, if you've got a commercial model, if you've got a business model to support that, really. And wouldn't these bike parks be making an awful lot more money if they weren't spending so much money on maintenance, you know? That's what I was just going to say. You, you, you'd be a lot more economically sustainable if you weren't paying, the ma- paying for the maintenance, but also you could be putting that effort into building more trail if you needed to. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, what's, what's really interesting is the, the trails that have been put into Coyote Brennan 30 years ago, they, they've had virtually no maintenance on them at all. And people still ride them, people still enjoy them. But what people are saying these days are, oh, well, you know, they're kind of out of date. You know, they're, they're, they're not what modern mountain bikers need. But I, I kind of disagree, really, because what I think people will always want to ride really good single-track trails, you know? You know, really good, flowy, sweet single track is is a thing of beauty, really, and it, and it's just fun to ride. You know. Well, and the good thing is, at least the way I see it, is that everything goes in cycles. Yeah. And we and I think we just we you know we are getting to one end of the spectrum, and that that'll start swinging back the other way. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think I think bike parks are here to stay, but I think. I think, you know, people will eventually cotton on to it being, you know, well, you know, I've got to pay 35 quid to go and to go and ride on these trails that I go lumpy bumpy flying up in the air on. I can go over here and I can have a really good time on the single track for free, you know? So I think it's actually quite a, all this stuff is quite a big issue in Wales at the moment because we've had, uh, you know, I developed the, five, six trail centres in Wales and then other trail centres developed in Wales after that, developed by community groups and local councils. But in recent years, there have, the um, bike parks have cropped up in Wales and the trail centres have seen a drop in visitors since the bike park, since the bike parks have opened. But having said that, the trail centres are still getting, you know, a hundred thousand visitors a year on the on the trails. It's just not one hundred and fifty thousand anymore. It's a hundred thousand, but still very significant numbers of people. And the feedback, the feedback that you get that I hear about the trail centres that we put in, is that what people really like it is that the trails have a very natural feel to them. That they're very engaging. That they're they're not. They're not sort of 
massively sort of predictable and and that they sit in the landscape really well and people actually like that i think i think because one of the things i think is really important about trails whether it's you know whether it's a downhill track or it's just a piece piece of single track you should be connecting people to the landscape to the habitat to the sense of place of somewhere and and i think making those connections is is really really important and i think sometimes high impact trails actually create a disconnect between people and the landscape and the habitat which i which i think which i think is sad really yeah i i agree because that's part of the reason why we're getting out is to get in, to be engaged in in the outdoors exactly exactly you know because if i if if i didn't want to connect to the landscape i I'd sit on my trainer and put a video up in front of myself, you know? There's a lot of people that do that now. There are a lot of people that do. (laughs) That's a whole new thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So one of the questions I ask nearly everybody is, and I'm going to ask it a little bit differently for you because you're a planner designer by trade. If you're going to start with a fresh, a clean slate to put a trail center in, what are the, what are the amenities and what are the things that you and I'm, I'm asking this selfishly for you. What are the things that you would per- personally want to see in that if you were going to start one from scratch today? I think that would depend on the frame of reference, really. So if you're saying, let, let's say, for instance, in your frame of reference, one of your aims and objectives is to create a national-level tourism product. So you want to create somewhere where people are going to come and ride for at least two days. So you're going to have to have enough trail to support that. And then you're going to have to think about, well, if what, what kinds of trails are we going to, are we going to put in? You know, bearing in mind what the needs and expectations of the, of the current market actually is, what sort of level of management are these trails actually going to need? And where are the resources going to come from? So basically we're saying, given, given the, the trails that we have to put in to meet the needs and expectations of the market are going to, you know, they're going to be sort of feature heavy. They're going to, like people are going to want to have a lot of features on the trails. So they're going to require more maintenance, more management than other types of trail. So then I would say, well, okay, then, then we need to center that trail system on somewhere that generates income that generates revenue so really then i would say you know i'm I'm not talking about a bike park now i'm talking about something like a trail center so that would be somewhere where you pay to park your car somewhere safe to park your car i would say that there should be you know toilets i think you know things like having a cafe and a hangout is is nice. It's a it's a good thing because it generates income, but I don't think it's absolutely essential. I think it's it's a it's um it it's something. If if you think about a sort of a trail product as like an ice cream cone, so you have the landscape, the forest, shall we say, is the is the core is the cone. The trails are the ice cream, and the chocolate sprinkles are all the Vista facilities on top. So the, it's nice to have the chocolate sprinkles, but they're not absolutely essential. But 
they can be they can be very useful for generating revenue for generating income and obviously you know it, it does it does make for a better experience for people i mean I've, I've developed plenty of trails where all there is is a car park and a toilet you know there's 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 nothing else but i've also developed trail centers that have got big fancy cafes big big bike shop bike rental children's play areas skills areas pump tracks all of that sort of stuff to go with it those are sort of for you know it's it kind of depends on the scope and scale of what you're trying to do the trail model that you're putting in and your aims and objectives so you got to make sure you get the front end right and that the that you're with that the, that you know exactly what the client wants for an outcome absolutely yeah yeah absolutely absolutely well i think uh this has been very fascinating for me because while i, I understand the area that, you know, how you began mountain biking, I think I, I probably started personally in like 89 or 90, you know, so I, I get where bikes were and trails were then. And I, in the most fascinating part about all this is that we're having this conversation today and all of that is still very relevant and there's still communities that this is brand new to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think what is important is the, you know, there's been a lot of work done around the world by a lot of very good people and people should be drawing the right lessons from that work. Really. I think that's really, really important. And, you know, I think some of those lessons are being ignored and forgotten really from, from some of the stuff that I see being done these days. Yeah, I agree. And I think, and I think a lot of it has to do with, well, not a lot of it. Some of it has to do with just, again, getting, like skipping the steps in the process on the front end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, if I if I think about the the way that I do things, you know, like I would have a project on the other side of the world that I, I would do a design for. I couldn't spend six months during the build um, supervising supervising the construction. So I would have to do really detailed planning and detailed design work to enable that to be done to the right standard without me having to be there the whole time. So really investing in the, in the planning and the, and the design process to make sure that stuff happens, happens in the right way. I always, the thing I always say to people is there are three important things, really. You need to build the right trails in the right places in the right ways. It's as simple as that, really. Yeah. It just dawned on me that we didn't even bring up the fact that you're a 2020 inductee to the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. Yeah. 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 That's a bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't be there, unfortunately, because I, because I was unwell. Well, it was also 2020. (laughs) No one was going anywhere. But they they actually did the the induction last year, I think it was sometime. Okay. Yeah, and I I just I saw that the induction, the, the most recent induction, Glenn Jacobs was at. Yeah, and rightly so. I will hopefully be seeing him here in the next probably month and a half, because he's a keynote speaker at the PTBA conference coming up here in March. Right here in the United States, cool. and another legend. He is a legend. Done some good stuff, you know. And and what's interesting about what his company does. They very much kind of moved with the times. They they've always had a, 
a strong philosophy behind what they do, you know, and sustainability is a is, is a big thing, and minimizing environmental impact is a big thing, but they're still delivering trails that people really want to ride, you know. Yeah, for sure, and it's it's awesome to see you know what he's done and and everything and. You brought up YouTube earlier and it's awesome to be able to see what's happening around the world through things like YouTube and, you know, so we can keep up with what's happening. Well, that's, that's because I, I put together a, a strategy for a national strategy for Ireland. One of the last things I did, I put together all the master plans for the, for the strategy and I actually keep up with the development of the trails by watching YouTube videos of the trails as, the, as they're being built. That's got to be pretty awesome to be able to see that your your work going into into action that way, and, That's not, quite cool. and not having not traveling there, not you know having to travel there. No, I do miss it, you know, because because my my uh, my health is a lot better now, so I'm I'm kind of toying with the idea of maybe starting up again. That's good, but I, I just I just don't know really. Though. I don't know, you know the, you know somebody like me at my age is competing with uh, younger guys who, I mean, I mean, I suppose the work that I do is different to what a lot of other people do. Cause I do a lot of strategic stuff and policy stuff. And, you know, I put together sort of national and regional strategies and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, there's a lot more people involved in it these days than there used to be. Well, I can, I can tell you as a person who works in the industry in planning and design, we need more of what you're saying implemented and and we we need to hear it more and it needs to be implemented more you're ahead of your time and you're still ahead of your time in that regard well thank you i mean i would yeah i think i think what uh, what one of the interesting thing was i worked on the olympic park in london on the legacy side of things and it was it was really really interesting working with landscape designers and landscape architects and a lot of the work that I do is actually very similar to what they do. And I learned a lot from them, but they also learned a lot from me. And I think one of the things that needs to happen with trail planning and design, it needs to be properly professionalized. It needs to be, it needs to be recognized as a proper professional discipline, you know, because that way we can make sure that trails, trails are actually done right. You know, cause it, cause it's absolutely crazy. You know, I was in Australia and I was in a place called Karatha in Western Australia, this place way in the middle of nowhere. And the local community had just spent $32 million on building a sports center. So this is, you know, with air conditioned kind of playing fields and squash courts and a swimming pool and all this kind of stuff. And they'd obviously got, you know, like a, a proper architect in to, to design this. And it cost a huge amount of money. And then they were asking me, how much would it cost for us to get some mountain bike trails in here? You know, because we want to make it into a mountain biking destination. And I said, well, it would probably, you know, from looking at it, having spent some time here, probably cost you about a million dollars to develop these trails. And, you know, my time would probably cost you about $20,000. And they were going, well, that's that's like way too much, you know. That's just like that's just crazy. That's just way too much money. I'm thinking, but you just paid thirty-two million for a sports center that gets used. You know, some of those sports pitches will get used 
once a week by 30 people, whereas trails get used every day by thousands of people. Yeah. You you just illustrated every ta- everything I illustrate when we talk about planning and design, and that is the planning and design is the most crucial part. It's also the cheapest part. It is the cheapest part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is the cheapest part. But it's it's like it's the value of it that isn't possibly recognized, I think. Yeah. One hundred percent. You know, the value of a good architect is is recognized worldwide. People will pay for a good architect to come and design the building for them. Whereas when it comes to trails, it it's not the same with what I would love to see happen is universities teaching trail planning and design so that you could actually come away with a with a, a proper qualification in, in trail planning and design. Interestingly enough, that is starting to happen at a very small scale. Yeah. You know, we have in the US here, in the middle of the US, there's a town called Bentonville. You've probably heard of it. Most people have. Um, they're start they're getting a trades one of their community colleges they're putting uh trail planning design and construction classes to coursework together right now for that and there's other universities doing it as well in, in terms of like a, a course here a course there and, and integrating it into, into other disciplines and i think that's probably where it begins and so you can kind of expand from there and hopefully it does expand i think you know at the very least if it you get people who go on land management to qualifications that at the very least those people need to understand the value of it for sure well and you brought up landscape architects and i that is a track i see a lot of people taking if they want to get into into trails currently it's probably the most direct track from what i could tell right now yeah yeah i think there's you know there are there are kind of you know there are are sort of crossovers between what landscape architects do and what trail planners and designers thing but you know people's what one of the things that differs with trail planning and design is that people's methodologies and stuff differ massively across all, all over the place so people do it do it differently all over the place a lot of people do it differently to me i do it differently to them you know so there needs to be some sort of i don't know that 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 it needs to get so joined up really so that there's you know Imba did did um, quite a lot of, of work on you know their sort of processes for planning and design that which which okay which which works okay at one level but when I think you're you're starting to talk about you know multi million dollar projects then you, you you need proper professional planning and design coming in really yeah for sure well should we wrap this one up yeah. You got any uh, closing comments you want to throw out there? Any words of wisdom that you haven't already spoke? I don't think so. I've spoken way too much. Well, that's the beauty of these things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole purpose is to, to I, I mean, the, this, whole re, this whole thing was started to share as a way to share knowledge of the things we're talking about here to re, and to reinforce, you know, why, why planning and design and trail development and sustainable trails is a good thing and what they can do for communities and, and to try to do it properly, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, really. I think that I would say the thing I would say, again, is build the right trails in the right places in the right ways, really. That's, that's the, the, the most important thing. 
Yeah. Well, David, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. That's all right. And sharing your knowledge with the, with the masses of, of the people who listen to this and especially the Tony Boons of the world. Yeah. I hope you have a, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. It's a, it's a Tuesday and sure yeah. you got your afternoon ahead of you. I've got my whole day ahead of me. I'm, I'm going for a ride. So. Well, that sounds perfect. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. be doing planning and design at a computer. Oh, that's nice for you. <laughs> so, you enjoy your ride. I'm jealous. I will do. Don't worry. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect Podcast, check out the Affiliate Links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.